Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Saturday, June 10th, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Former President Donald Trump is the first ex-commander-in-chief to face not only state charges, but now federal charges as well. On top of that, he's still a candidate for president in the 2024 election. What could this mean for him and his campaign? Biden didn't have to do this. The Justice Department didn't have to do this. They didn't have to indict Trump. They decided to do it, which means they've made the Espionage Act an issue in the campaign. I'm Chad Pergram. It's been a big week on Capitol Hill. Aisha Hosni joins me to discuss the latest news out of the House and Senate. The true test is what's going to happen with this revolt, as we're calling it now, apparently. It, it really is going to be testing the speaker's willingness to reach across and try to work something out. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The term witch hunt may no longer be associated with dark magic, as former President Donald Trump has made it very common in the world of U.S. politics. And it's no different this time after the former president's second indictment. They can't stop because it's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened. President Trump faces more than 30 counts involving obstruction of justice, conspiracy, and illegal retention of classified government material. This began after Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida was raided by the FBI over accusations he was holding classified government documents. Eventually, special counsel Jack Smith was appointed to lead the DOJ investigation. The indictment comes as President Biden faces his own classified documents investigation, being accused of both bribery and corruption. As the 2024 presidential election nears and President Trump continues to be the GOP frontrunner, some believe the DOJ's move to investigate Trump will have major 2024 implications. Well, I'm not surprised that he was charged, but I think it hit everyone like a bolt when it happened. Andy McCarthy served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. I argued, and I wrote this, I think, back in September, shortly after the search at Mar-a-Lago on August 8th, that it was a virtual certainty that former President Trump would be indicted um, because it looked to me as somebody who was a prosecutor for 20 years that the Justice Department lawyers, this was two months before uh, Smith was appointed as special counsel, but it looked very clear that the Justice Department lawyers were doing all the things that prosecutors do when they're serious about building a case. Remember when Mar-a-Lago was first searched, the, the, the popular theory was that the government really wasn't trying to make a case on Trump. They were just uh, trying to get their stuff back, which he wouldn't give them. But it became clear from the way that they treated the case, from the fact that they went to a magistrate judge and got a finding of probable cause that he had committed uh, various crimes. Uh, and then the way they went about 
the investigation where they were giving, for example, they gave people immunity to testify in the grand jury. The government only gives immunity to people when they're trying to make a case on somebody higher up the chain, so to speak. So it, it just seemed to me for many months that they wouldn't have done all the things they did had they not intended to charge him. That doesn't mean that when the charge finally comes, even though we for the last week, we've essentially been told it's coming any second. So uh, it, it can't be that much of a surprise, but it's still a jolt. I mean, this is a historically it's it's really unprecedented in federal law. And what do you make of the unprecedented nature of this? I mean, now he's now the, the first former United States president to face a state criminal charge and also the first to face a federal criminal charge. What do you make of just the historical implications of this and how we've really never seen anything like it? Yeah, I think it's one of these things that's hard to assess the historical significance of it because it's got a present day consequence that makes the history almost beside the point. And that is that uh, he's not only a former president, he's a current presidential candidate who's actually substantially leading in the polls uh, in connection with his party's uh, you know, nomination contest. So, you know, the, the, the historical matters will be for people to make judgments on years from now. Uh, in the here and now, we have to deal with the, you know, what is the upshot of this for electoral politics in America for the next year and a half? And, and what do you make of the political aspect of this? Because, uh, you know, we've seen a good amount of candidates come out and support President Trump here, say that this is a example of weaponization of the Department of Justice, that, that there's not enough evidence to be indicting him right now. But then you also have Asa Hutchinson coming out and saying that, President Trump should should pretty much drop out of the race. So what do you make of the political aspect of this and how this could impact 2024? My take on this is a little bit different from a lot of Republicans and conservatives. Uh, and it's a it's a minority position, but I think I'll be proven to be correct in the end. And that is, I think be, even before this torrent of criminal prosecutions and, and civil complaints, that Trump had no chance to win the 2024 election, but he has an excellent chance uh, of winning the nomination, which would be a catastrophe for the Republican Party because he can't win the general election. And I don't say that I'm not I'm not one of these people. I don't hate Trump. I voted for him twice. I wrote an endorsement of him for National Review in, in 2020. I'm talking about math. He won miraculously in 2016 with just 46 percent of the vote. Uh, he never improved on that in in uh, his incumbency with all the advantages of that. He couldn't get over 46. He could never get to 47 because of all the 2020 election hijinks uh, and the way the country broadly feels about that, which we're not seeing as obviously because in the in the nomination context, you're talking about just Republicans who aren't as incensed about all that. If you broaden it out to the full electorate, Trump won in 2016 and lost in 2020 with 54 percent of the country being against him. And now, even before all these cases started, uh, because of the 2020 stuff, he'll never see 46 percent again. So you can't win unless he can get over that. And I don't think I don't think there's a chance he can get over that. So to me, 
the the big consequence of these indictments and other you know the civil complaints the prosecutions and all that the big consequence is twofold one is it prevents any other republican from getting traction with the electorate at this sensitive time when they're just rolling out their campaigns and they're trying to get noticed and uh and, and get some attention and secondly the democrats you know their plan is Trump gets nominated and then they beat him in the general election. So I think they're doing all these things because they know that these indictments, which are all coming from like a Democratic controlled Justice Department and Democratic state prosecutors around the country. It's they're not doing this because they're stupid. They're not doing it because they have uh, just because they have stars in their eyes and they want to be famous. They're doing it because they know that when they bring these indictments, the Trump base goes crazy. And as a result, Trump starts to surge in the polls. And more importantly, none of his opponents, particularly DeSantis, can get traction. And it makes it much more likely that he gets nominated. And the Democrats know that if he gets nominated, they'll beat him. Now, I do have to counter your point a little bit there, because I, I do think there are a lot of Republicans who, who are in agreement with you, where they feel that uh, Donald Trump, Democrats want Donald Trump to be the nominee because they think they have a better chance of beating him and that uh, that ultimately this these criminal charges do help him to win the nomination from the Republican Party. But granted, a lot of the Republicans I hear that from are are ones who are not going to be endorsing or voting for Donald Trump uh, in the primary, too. But, you know, he really has kind of galvanized this in many ways to to fundraise off it and to fire up his base. Um, And I think one thing that stands out is the fact that he was the one who broke the news this time. And he's done it several times whenever one of these leads kind of happens you know what do you make of of how he's utilized this issue um and fired up his base and how it has helped him in the in the primary so far well he it it helps him in the primary that's why he's doing it i mean he wants to be the nominee he thinks he can win you know just because i don't think he can win doesn't mean he's you know he's got his own calculation and it's not a crazy calculation he says he's saying basically there's only two people who are going to have a chance to be president, the Republican nominee and the Democratic nominee. So he has to accomplish mission one, which is to become the Republican nominee, and then he'll take his chances at the end, right? So, of course, he's the one who's announcing this because he sees, for example, in many polls, he was behind DeSantis when Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, indicted him. And within two weeks or two and a half weeks, he was about 20 or 30 points ahead. So he sees what the impact of this is. And you're right that the fundraising, you know, it galvanizes his base. It catalyzes their activity. He's been able to fundraise off it. But that the problem is with the general electorate, none of that helps him. He had in his high watermark, he had 54 percent of the country voting against him. And those people, even those who, like me, think that, you know, no matter what you think of Trump, this politicized uh, Justice Department, this two-tiered justice system we have where the quality of justice that you get uh, depends on whether you're affiliated with connected people or whether you're Republican or Democrat. I get all that and I agree with all that, but the, the sad news I have to break to people is that is not going to cause people to vote for Trump. It'll cause them to be angry at the system it may cause them to reject the system and stay home and not vote. But when you're talking about the general electorate as opposed to Republican electorate, this doesn't help Trump. So 
You know, he's got to get in order for him to have a chance to win. He's got to get to 48 or 49. And I don't think he can ever see 46 again. And, but is there a twofold here? Because obviously President Biden has his fair share of investigations going on right now, one from the, the Department of Justice. Uh, but then you also have the Oversight Committee pretty aggressively looking into this alleged bribery scheme involving right. President Biden and a foreign national. You know, d does that have an impact here or, or could it maybe galvanize Biden's base in a way uh, and say that, you know, hey, Republicans are utilizing the Oversight Committee against him and use those talking points? Or is, is this one completely different? I think it's different in the sense that Biden doesn't have a base like Trump has a base. I mean, Biden has the institutional media Democrat complex, which is a, you know, a very powerful thing to have. But he's not a personality like Hillary Clinton, even. You know, he doesn't give people a sort of a visceral negative reaction. Nobody's all that whipped up to have him either. You know, it's a, he's just that kind of a sort of a stumble bum figure. But I think. To the extent that this impacts Biden, I think it makes it more likely that you will get a different Democrat who ends up being the candidate in the end. As a, I'm not at all convinced that Biden is ultimately going to be the candidate. And I think he's going to have the same kind of issues that Trump has in the sense that he's got the accumulation now of not only the investigation of the Biden family influence peddling, the evidence of which gets worse every day. But because the Democrats chose to go this route and indict Trump for espionage act violations, what Trump is going to be pointing out every single day is that Biden is also guilty of violating the espionage act. And Biden and the Democrats and the Justice Department and all that stuff, they're going to run around telling the country, well, you know, look, Trump's activity here was willful and he misled the grand jury and all that stuff. And then Trump is going to come back and say, read what the Espionage Act says. If you do what Biden did, if you are grossly negligent in mishandling classified information, Congress has made that a 10 year felony. So Biden didn't have to do this. The Justice Department didn't have to do this. They didn't have to indict Trump. They decided to do it, which means they've made the Espionage Act an issue in the campaign. I wouldn't have done it if I were they, but they decided to do it. And they've given Trump the opportunity every single day to say, number one, Biden's as guilty as the day is long. And number two, isn't it amazing that the Justice Department won't appoint a special counsel for the Biden family corruption investigation? There was no conflict of interest between the Biden Justice Department and Donald Trump that required appointing a special counsel. The Justice Department was investigating Trump for a year and a half before Smith was appointed. There was no need for a special counsel. The only reason that Garland appointed a special counsel was political. He wants to create the illusion that Biden himself and the Biden Justice Department didn't have anything to do with the decision to prosecute Trump. But the problem they have is that, number one, that's just fantasy. Everybody knows that uh, that Garland and, and Biden are in on this. Uh, and secondly, how do you square appointing a special counsel for Trump when, with respect to the Biden family, there's a raging conflict of interest between the Biden Justice Department and the Biden family, which is like the classic case where you appoint a special counsel and Garland won't do it. So he's given Trump a ton, a ton of stuff to play with. My only question politically is, 
how much does it redound to Trump's benefit? I think it's going to hurt Biden a lot. I'm not sure it, it you know, saves the day for Trump. Now, now, just to be clear, did you, did you just say that you think that this that the, the, the deeper this goes, the more likely that, that President Biden could step aside and not be the nominee for the Democrats? I think, yeah, I think events might force that. You know, he's got a couple of things going. He's got a major corruption investigation. He's now, you know, basically invited Trump to point out to the country every day that he should be indicted under the Espionage Act, no matter what happens in his corruption investigation. And the other thing that's unprecedented is his age and health. He's, you know, clearly not up to the job. And the longer a, a very strenuous campaign goes on, uh, it's going to become more and more evident that he's not up to the job. And what I, I, I really worry about him as a, you know, politics aside, as a human being. You know, when, when old people at his age, with his medical history, when, when things like, you know, tripping and falling start to happen, that doesn't get better over time. And the job of being president of the United States is the second hardest job in the world. The first hardest job is being president of the United States while trying to run for re-election and all that that entails. I don't think he's up to the job he has now. I don't I, I just don't see him both governing this country and running for re-election and that not having health and and physical consequences. I just don't see it. Now, now, does Trump run into that issue, too? Because, you know, if he's in fact going to be the nominee, then he's going to have to deal with these legal issues while he's running for president. Uh, yep. And maybe you can give us a better idea, too, of, of how much, you know, how much time he's going to spend in the courtroom, how much time the legal deliberations are going to go on. How does that play in here? It's a big problem. I mean, the thing with legal proceedings is there's constant need to be in court over uh, especially criminal proceedings. So we have an indictment now. Next week, we're going to have an arraignment. Then the case gets assigned to a judge. Then there's going to be motion practice. Then there'll be hearings. You know, eventually there'll be a trial. So it's hard enough when that's going on with one thing in your life. But if you're like Trump and you have four or five different litigations, there's going to be something coming up all the time. So, I mean, if you just look at the calendar this month, he's in federal court arguing that the Manhattan District Attorney's case should be moved to federal court. Right. In August, the Fulton County District Attorney is going to indict him. In October, he goes to trial on the massive civil fraud case that's been brought by the New York State Attorney General. In December, he's back in court in Manhattan on Bragg's case for hearings. That case is scheduled for trial on May 25th, which is two weeks after Super Tuesday. And we haven't even gotten to the federal cases yet. So you know, I mean, it's a lot. Now, you, you think he still could get indicted in Georgia, too? I do. I think it's a you can bank on it. Why do you think that? Um, well, we, we heard from the grand jury for woman that, you know, we weren't going to be surprised by what comes down. Um, and it was very clear that, uh, you know, Fannie Willis herself, who was a partisan Democrat, was talking about bringing a racketeering case against Trump. And I, I would just point out to people, I've, I've, I've tried to make this um, point as often as I can. In federal law, the prosecutors are appointed. You know, the only elected person is the president. So prosecutors get vetted, especially United States attorneys and attorneys general, 
they get vetted by the Senate to make sure that they're not going to, at least they have to commit that they're not going to use their uh, power for partisan ends. You can argue that, that it's not an effective vetting process, but at least that's part of the process. In the states, it's very different. The prosecutors are elected officials. And in New York, you have the unbelievable situation of, you know, Bragg and Letitia James both ran for office promising that if they got elected, they'd use their power to go after Trump. Fannie Willis is a partisan Democrat. It's in her interest to go after Trump. Uh, how the case comes out is for her is almost of secondary importance than the fact that her constituents who are progressive Democrats see her using her power against Trump. So the, the problem that Trump has is the political motivation for these state prosecutors to bring these cases is enormous. All right, Andy McCarthy, we are out of time, but, uh, you know, very historical and unprecedented situation we're seeing here. And uh, we're obviously going to continue to follow this. And thank you so much for for breaking it down and making it simpler for us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. So, Aisha, talk to us about this revolt in the House of Representatives where everything came to a screeching halt. What's going on there? Yeah, what a week, uh, Chad, for the speaker um, who got absolutely no time to celebrate this big win in the debt ceiling deal, right? Uh, Not the celebration I think he would have chosen, but um, Mm -hmm. he should have seen this coming, right? It feels a lot like January all over again. Back to the speakership bid where you've got this group of Freedom Caucus folks who see this slim majority and believe that they are entitled to hold up the entire House, Uh, the entire legislative process to have their voices heard. And it's always the same group, Chad. No one else is doing it. There there were a lot of folks that voted no on this debt limit bill, and they aren't holding up gas stoves here. It's always the same small group of people. So they're not cooking with gas, as you might say. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It doesn't have anything to do with the gas stoves. Um, But it doesn't sound like it's going to get resolved this week. And it's really raising the question, I think, of is this... Is this what we're in for for the entire session? Is this going to be a stop and go session here? And is the Freedom Caucus going to be an issue in the appropriations process? And McCarthy has called this, you know, family differences. He kind of uh, tries to make light of it. He says they're going to work through it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't help the conference at all. Well, as I always say, it's about the math. You know, they can only lose four members on their side and not rely on Democrats to help them, you know, put something across the finish line in the House. We saw that with the debt ceiling bill itself. They needed a lot of Democratic votes on that. Mm -hmm. They needed Democratic votes on the rule. That's the procedural vote to get to the debt ceiling bill itself, or you can't bring up the underlying bill. And then this was the issue the other day on the gas stoves. Well, the Democrats weren't for that. So if Republicans can't, you know, hold the freight there. And this is where Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, said, you know, the majority has a responsibility to control the floor. We're not going to bail them out all the time. What does this mean long term, though, for Kevin McCarthy? Because a lot of people have said, well, maybe this sort of Damocles, this so-called motion to vacate the chair is on the table, is it? We've heard that, you know, from a few members, and I emphasize few because, Chad, you you and I both know, uh, even if there is a motion to vacate, doesn't necessarily mean that 
Speaker McCarthy gets the boot. Um, you have to have you know enough votes, like you said. It's all about the math, and and it does not seem like there's support in booting out McCarthy across the conference. Even folks, like I said, that voted no on the debt ceiling limit had their own reasons, whether it was that it didn't cut enough spending or that it capped defense spending. Uh, they still believe in their speaker, and they trust him, and they're hopeful that in the weeks and months to come that he'll listen to them more. I think that is apparent. But when it comes to, you know, this motion to vacate, it's been brought up a lot, talked about a lot. Um, it's really just one or two people that brought it up and then said that the conference should discuss it. Well, those conversations haven't really gone anywhere yet. But the true test is what's going to happen with this revolt, as we're calling it now, apparently. It, it really is going to be testing the speaker's uh, willingness to reach across and try to work something out with these folks who feel like no one's listening to them um, or just feel like, you know, the, the promises they were made uh, during the speakership bid um, were basically broken in this debt ceiling, um, you know, discussion. So it will be, I think everyone needs to watch what the speaker does in the next couple of days if this gets resolved in the next couple of days. And and if this is what it's looking like on GOP bills, bills that are supposed to pass through this House pretty, you know, swimmingly, what's going to happen when really big, you know, issues come to the forefront, like, Ukraine aid, you know, that's already mm -hmm. being talked about. We're not even there yet. Um, but that might be the next big showdown. What's going to happen then? Yeah. I mean, how much is Kevin McCarthy sweating this? You, you know, he is the speaker. As you said, he tries to kind of joke this off and say, you know, we'll be stronger later on. But he does not have that big vote margin. You know, we thought they might have a 40 or 50 seat majority uh, this year. They're down to four votes. It's not going to be very much. I mean, or is that just a facade from him? You know, it's hard to tell. Speaker McCarthy um, has this demeanor, I've noticed, in the last couple of years. He, he's very, very good at hiding whatever he's actually feeling. <laughs> and maybe he is just really, really always calm and in a good mood because he's always smiling, as you know, when he walks by the press. And he often takes questions, which is uh, great for us. But he's always smiling. That. We do appreciate that. And he's always smiling and he's always sort of um, got this sense of attitude of, you know, we're, we're, I'm going to figure it out. And, and and not only does he not complain about his own um, conference, he sort of like flips the script and tries to make this into almost a good deal, a good situation. Like this is like, yeah, this is a, a family matter and we're going to all discuss it and figure it out. We'll be better for it. And that's what he did after the speakership bit after, you know, uh, round after round of getting voted no. Um, he can't, he would never say anything bad about his own, the members of his own conference. So I think what he has been saying, though, to those few people that are holding this whole process up is, you know, what are you here for? Who are you actually serving? And I think that's smart, you know, to, to put it sort of back on them. Are you here to serve the American people or are you here to serve yourself? And you can't really take any hostages. That's that, Those were his words this week. You have to find a way to move forward, to work together so that the GOP conference can get their agenda through. Well, Aisha, the question is, do people think that this is going to be resolved or is the be there a better chance of people actually seeing UFOs 
Uh, that's the I, question I was I just going to say, <laughs> I was, you beat me to it. I was going to say, I think we have a better uh, chance of answering the question about the UFOs than about whether mm-hmm. this gets resolved or not. There's a hearing um, on this in, in a week or two here on the House I, side. I yeah. need you to tell me and everyone else if we are about to witness something crazy in the next couple of weeks here. I'm preparing for it. I'm mentally prepared for, for some something out there to touch down. Well, there's a whistleblower, David Grush is his name, and and suppose now he says he's a whistleblower. When you talk to mm-hmm. uh, the inspector general's office for the intelligence community, you know they can never confirm if somebody is a whistleblower, but that is a, a self-described status of somebody who's willing to come, who's willing to come forward. And that being the case, so he's out here, uh, you know, saying that he has seen some things and the government, if the truth is out there, the government's not being truthful about it. And so, you know, last year, about May of last year, there was a hearing before the House Intelligence Committee, an open hearing, the first one they've had like this in, in, in 50 years. And they compelled the Pentagon and the intelligence community to take these complaints and observations and reports of unidentified aerial phenomena that you see UAPs as they call them now. Seriously, there's a regimen, a protocol to go through and investigate these things. And, you know, just not describe as Andre Carson, the Democratic congressman from Indiana who chaired the hearing last year says, you know, not not just slough these people off as kooks. And so, you know, they have to take this seriously. I thought it was very interesting. And a lot of the people who we talked to here on the Hill, maybe because of the special whistleblower status, if that's in fact what he has, is that they said we would have no comment, would not comment whatsoever on this. Uh, you know, supposedly when there is a whistleblower like this, and this is part of the statute that's been put in, this is part of the defense policy bill approved last year, that they have to you know, entertain these things seriously and give us a little bit of a special protection uh, to whistleblowers anyway. And so they're going to be loath to comment on any of these things. Uh, that, so that's kind of where they are right now. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that this whistleblower himself has not seen any of the evidence that he has heard about been told by some of these um, high level officials, as he says, that he's spoken with. Um, But he hasn't himself seen any of these aircraft or pictures of these aircrafts, perhaps even, you know, aliens. Um, He hasn't himself actually seen that. What is interesting, I think, is uh, his interview and his, you know, details of, of what he's learned shows that the agency that Congress has sort of assigned to investigate these, you know, flying objects isn't getting the all the information that it should be getting. And it's the organization's called Arrow. That mm-hmm. it's it's something that I think the Senate and the House take a lot of pride in and really do believe that it is doing the work of the American people by by really trying to dig into, you know, all these sightings and these things that we see in, in videos. And, and we all have questions. But now we're learning through this whistleblower that this agency that Congress has sort of tasked to do this isn't getting all the facts, isn't getting everything that it that it should be getting. And that really I mean, for a lot of people out there that have believed in this from day one, this isn't a big surprise. 
Yeah. And, 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 you know, this has been, as Mike Turner, the chair of the Intelligence uh, Committee, he said, that, you know, this goes back, you know, 50 years, Project Blue mm -hmm. Book, as it was called way back when. Uh, you know, it's funny, both the he, the chair of the Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, and the top Democrat on the committee, Jim Himes, were on uh, Fox with Brett Baer, and they indicated that they had never seen, when they asked those questions, now Jim Himes said that he asked a very specific question, uh, and that there's nothing of, of evidence of, of, of spacecraft, you know, remains, non-human remains, anything that's from, quote, out of this world that's out there. But uh, again, you know, it wouldn't be the first time the government's covered something right. up. Maybe we don't know. They don't, maybe, and, they, and, maybe they're being right. Maybe they're being protected from seeing those things. We don't and, know. And, and you, That's do you the know question who, this whistleblower raises. Yes, absolutely. And, and sometimes these things are siloed in government, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you have top secret, you know, programs. This was something that Marco Rubio, you know, who's, who's you know, who's been involved in the intelligence circles for years on the intelligence uh, committee. He said it would almost be better if some of this stuff, especially the unidentified aerial phenomena they see, is actually something from outer space than something from North Korea or the Chinese or Russia. He said, because that means we're behind. So, you know, that's the, the question we have to, to figure out. So the truth is out there, Aisha. I know that our listeners, they'll certainly get that on <laughs> this podcast. But as to everything else, I can't attest to that. <laughs> I'm a believer, that, Chad. I think they're out okay. there. <laughs> Great. Well, it's wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Aisha. You as well. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, White House coordinator for the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, Mitch Landrieu, explains how the Biden administration's infrastructure bill has been moving forward and discusses how money is being spent across the country. And with more pressure on the Biden administration to boost aid to Ukraine, Dr. Rebecca Grant joins with a look at the latest developments from Russia's war in Ukraine. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown. I'm Ryan Schmelz from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.